I'm Laurent Bartels. I'm a reader in international law at the University of Cambridge. Uh, Dr Bartels, thank you very much indeed for talking to our podcast series today. We're looking at Brexit and Britain's and the UK's future trading relationship with the EU and other countries post-Brexit because you're also an expert on the so-called WTO or World Trade Organization rules. Let's start by asking you what deals the UK can make when we Brexit the EU next March. How would checkers play out? Well, Chequers doesn't really give us everything. Chequers talks about customs duties, essentially, which is a taxation issue, and that's an important part of whatever relationship we have with the EU. But Chequers doesn't really talk terribly much about the regulatory issues, which is essentially saying, at the border, how do you know that a product from the EU or a product from the UK is able to be sold in the other country, and that involves checking certificates and so on. Now, Chequers is optimistic that this can all be done, but the EU says not. Do you think Chequers is a good deal for the UK? I don't think it's for me to say whether or not it's a good deal. There are always trade-offs, and the trade-off in this area is between sovereignty, which means control of your borders, control of your laws, control of the people who come in, and, on the other hand, economic integration, which, from the EU's point of view, is a good thing for a country because it allows you to command economies of scale, it's better for your businesses, and so on. There are, of course, some exceptions. Some businesses will do better without a harmonised system and the sorts of competition that one sees in a larger market, but other businesses, the majority, according to economic theory, will do better. So it's that trade-off, and Chequers is an attempt to strike that balance, the EU would say, well, it's more cake, trying to have the best of both worlds, the best of sovereignty and the best of an integrated market, and they're not really happy about it. And in terms of the Chequers deal and what it says about having a common rule book for goods, do you accept that that would make the UK a rule taker, not a rule maker? I think that's the implication. If you read the white paper on that point, it's fairly clear that the idea in Chequers is, to, is for the UK Parliament to implement EU rules voluntarily, a bit like volunteering to go over the top. Of course, the UK needs, for this to make sense from a Brexit point of view, to say that those rules will not necessarily be implemented. There's no obligation to implement those rules, and it does. the white paper does say that, However, what the white paper then acknowledges is that if that happens, the UK can expect withdrawal of market access, suspension of the agreements, and so on. It seems a little bit of a backwards way of looking at things. What the white paper, and, and therefore Chequers, doesn't deal with is enforcement. And that's a second level. So the only re there are two levels. One level is what are the rules, and yes, in this case, the UK would be a rule taker to the extent it wants an integrated market. The second level is how can the other side trust that you are implementing and enforcing those rules properly? Chequers doesn't say terribly much about that, and it can't, because that depends upon a common enforcement framework which exists within the EU. And the whole point of leaving the EU is for that supervisory mechanism, that enforcement framework, to disappear. So that's the main reason that the EU isn't very much in favour of Chequers. It's not just about the rule book, it's about how you enforce those rules, and Chequers doesn't say anything about that. But Chequers is a withdrawal agreement. It builds on other 
agreements and statements that Theresa May, the UK Prime Minister, has made, won't it just get us past that finishing line of brexiting the EU on the 29th of March 2019 and then we can sort out properly our future trading relationships with the EU. In a way, Czechos is a stopgap. Well, I'd go even further. I mean, legally speaking, uh, Czechos is all about the future relationship and legally that future relationship can only be determined after Brexit Day. In other words, Chequers is a forecast from a political point of view what the UK would like a future relationship to look like. Uh, the EU says that at most there can be a political agreement on that before Brexit Day, but not a legally binding agreement, certainly not one that can be linked to the actual withdrawal agreement, which is about divorce issues. Chequers goes beyond that. The so-called backstop and the Northern Ireland border issue, which in effect means that the UK will have to stay in the single market to trade uh, with Ireland because there is to be no border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Is that the obstacle that everybody has made it out to be throughout these negotiations? Is it a sticking point or could it be solved by the so-called technology max fact solution? Well, on technology, I don't know because that's beyond my area of knowledge. All I know is that nobody thinks that technology exists, not even the ERG. It's all about the technology maybe existing in the future. Now, the backstop is supposed to be a backstop that exists in the event that there isn't that technology. So one way of looking at it is to say we'll have the backstop until the technology emerges. I don't think anybody says the technology is there today. And then it becomes a question when the technology might emerge. You can have different views on that. I've got no view on that because I simply don't know. In terms of whether the backstop is actually necessary and what it implies, well, again, there are two solutions that I think by now uh, are fairly well known. One is that you have some measure of control on the Northern Irish-Irish border. Uh, that would mean that you don't need controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And the other is that you have no controls in the, on the Northern Irish-Irish border, but you do need enhanced controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, the first is advantageous for Northern Irish-Irish trade, obviously, but has constitutional implications for the rest of the UK. Uh, the second, of course, has a, a problem for the peace process in the sense that you have a, a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland of some sort. I don't really think that the UK's solution to this, which is to bring the whole of the UK within the effectively the customs union and single market as a backstop in the area of goods alone, is going to fly for a couple of reasons. Number one, it won't satisfy those who worried about the UK simply being a rule taker, and that would put the UK in a completely rule taking position, even more than checkers. And secondly, it doesn't suit the EU because the EU says, well, that would put you at a disadvantage. And there's an economic reason for this. They will talk about this in terms of indivisibility of the four freedoms, which means you can't be within the EU, which is what this would be just for goods. You need to be in the EU for 
persons, free movement of persons, free movement of capital, and free movement of services as well. Why do they say that? Well, it sounds nice, it sounds legal, it sounds necessary. That's not actually true at all because we're talking about EU external relations, and they can carve up these four freedoms, and they frequently do. What they're really talking about, which Barnier has been on the record talking about recently, is that if the UK has a fully free market in goods, but not in services in particular, or in free movement of persons, it will be able to undercut the EU in those two areas. Principally, what this means is that the UK will be able to have cheaper labour, potentially, depends on, of course, the UK domestic policy on that, but also the UK will be able to have cheaper access to services and in particular financial services. In other words, a manufacturing business in the UK will have access to cheaper capital than the, an EU equivalent business will be able to have access to, and that will put the UK firm at an advantage in what would otherwise be free market in goods. And Barnier has been fairly upfront about this recently. We haven't heard that case for the EU side of the Chequers deal put very often. In fact, it's said that Chequers is just a bad agreement for the UK and a good one for the EU. But you see it differently. Well, the EU doesn't reject these things for no reason. If we move on or just finish off the Northern Ireland border issue, do you think there's a solution to it? Again, it does depend on technology. I think there's been a little bit of theologizing on both sides, both the EU side and the UK side. What I would point out, which has been pointed out by Barnier a number of times now, is that there are already checks in the Irish Sea because the island of Ireland is a common zone as far as phytosanitary and uh, sanitary measures are concerned. In other words, um, health and safety measures, quarantine measures. For those purposes, Ireland of Ireland is treated differently from the rest of Great Britain. There are already checks in the Irish Sea, so it's a question of enhancing those checks. What checks need to be done? Who needs to do them? I understand there's a bit of movement on whether it would be UK officials or EU which is to say Irish officials performing these checks, I'm sure that there is more flexibility there. But it, even if you lighten the border, you still need to answer the question, where is a lighter border going to be? Is it going to be a land border or is it going to be a sea border? That question can't be fudged. If we look at the other so-called options, people talk about WTO, World Trade Organization rules. We can drop out without a deal and go to WTO rules, Norway or a Canada-style agreement or even an EEA, European Economic Area Agreement. Indeed, there is a report on migration and movement of labour, one of those four freedoms, and it's saying we should not allow free movement of EU nationals after Brexit, but resort to what Canada does, and it looks at the skills of the people applying to come to the country in question. Is there an easy way to discuss all these options? I mean, 18 months on from triggering Article 50, every option seems to still be on the table, and yet none. It comes back, I think, to the dichotomy which I mentioned before, which is all of this is a trade-off between ease of movement, of goods, of services, of people, of workers, on the one hand, and sovereignty on the other. You can't have both at the same time. That's what the EU calls cherry-picking. 
And the more you hand over your rules to the EU, the more you have to open yourself to the EU. That means opening yourself to EU people. That means opening yourself to EU trucks without checks at the border, opening yourself to EU services, and of course, vice versa. So if we're talking about these different options, we need to look at it from that point of view. What we have at the moment is the most integrated arrangement possible as a member state of the EU, where there is full free movement and no checks of any sort, apart from passport checks because we're not in a common visa zone with the EU. But as everybody will know, those are usually pretty light. The further along you get to a disintegrated market, which is the World Trade Organization, the more you're going to have those checks. Those checks will be at the border. I'll be checking for more and more things, and the checks will be longer, the queues will be longer, and so on. Anything in between will have some sort of intermediate status, but there will still be border checks, there'll still be queues at Dover, and so on. So really, it's a question of trade-offs between uh, being able to make your own rules, which comes at a cost in terms of ease of access to the other side and vice versa, or agreeing common rules with the other side, which of course means what's good is you, you have easier access. On the other hand, you have less control over the rulemaking. Now that's the basic framework. On top of that, you've got political issues. Though so far, those are just technical issues, but there are political issues because the EU doesn't like the UK having its cake and eating it for a couple of reasons. One is, as I was mentioning before, it could be costly to the EU. There's an economic reason for not allowing the UK to get all the good bits of the EU and not take the expensive bits or be able to undercut the EU. That's an economic problem that the EU has to grapple with. And the second is the purely political issue, which is the EU likes the EU and it wants it to hang together. And it doesn't like the idea that the UK can walk out with the good bits and not the bad bits. And the reason for that is quite simply, as I think everybody knows, that would fail to discourage others thinking of the same thing. I mean, we know 18 months after the, or however long it's been now since the Brexit vote, that the appetite from other EU member states for leaving the EU has disappeared. No other EU member state wants to leave the EU. And why? Because they can see what a disruptive event it is for the UK. Now, it may well be, from the UK's point of view, that the people want to leave the EU. And you know that's a sovereign choice that the people can make. But it can't be made without also accepting that there are going to be disruptions and ongoing disruptions, not just temporary disruptions. In her interview this week with Panorama, BBC's Panorama, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, seemed to be saying... It's checkers or no deal. If it comes to no deal, would the UK be able to fall back on those World Trade Organization rules? You've just talked about the checks, but could it just slip easily into WTO rules to do trade with the EU, 27, and with the rest of the world? Oh, certainly. I mean, it's not even slipping into the rules. Those rules are binding on the UK. They have been binding on the UK as a WTO member in its own right since the WTO was established in 1995. And the rules were also binding on the UK as a GATT contracting party since 1947. None of that has changed. There's a, a bit of a misunderstanding about the UK's role in the WTO. The EU is also a WTO member and the EU has exercised the UK's rights in the WTO since the UK became an EU member state in 1973. And it has performed the UK's, or rather taken responsibility in the WTO for performing the UK's 
obligations. But that doesn't mean that those rights and obligations went to the EU, only belong to the EU. It's the EU that stepped in for the UK. The obligations and the rights in the WTO have always been the UK's. And so that doesn't change. It's just the UK is now going to repatriate its responsibility and its ability to exercise those rights in the WTO. Now, that means that from a purely legal point of view, nothing changes from the UK's point of view. But then the question is, well, what are those rules? What are those rights and obligations as between the UK and the EU? And there, unfortunately, for both sides, they simply don't give as much as membership of the European Union in economic terms, in terms of ease of access to each other's markets, in terms of whether or not there can be an absence of checks at the border, as there currently is in the EU, which, as everybody knows, I think, was a UK drive. It was a Thatcher ask. So the WTO simply doesn't go that far, which means there will be, you know, it's not a complete free-for-all. It won't be North Korea. It won't be, you know, completely isolated from the EU or any other country because the WTO does do quite a lot compared to a non-WTO world, but it doesn't get you anywhere uh, near the degree of integration uh, that one sees um, within the EU as an EU member state. How long does it take to negotiate a trade deal? Well, most trade agreements, it depends on, on what they want to cover. So it's a little bit hard to generalise. The shortest agreements have taken about a year and a half. The longest, well, they're ongoing. I mean, they can take 20 years. You might sort of, with a modern free trade agreement, settle on five years, seven years, nine years. But the point is, that doesn't really matter because that isn't the sort of negotiation that we would be having with the EU or, for that matter, with the other countries with which the EU currently has a free trade agreement, which the UK would then need to replicate. The current situation is completely different, so I don't think these analogies are really all that useful. What we have at the moment is a negotiation to subtract from a very full degree of economic integration. That means that we're dealing with technical issues. Now, there's a lot of technical issues, and that will take time to organise, but there's no precedent for doing, no modern precedent for doing this, and, and no precedent for doing this sort of complicated disintegration. So we're flying in the dark a little bit. So I don't think that the analogy with normal free trade agreements makes any sense. There's another important reason why the situations are different. The reason that normal free trade agreements take a long time to negotiate is not because they are technically complicated. It's because in the process of negotiation, what you are doing is countering domestic protectionist pressures. You're trying to convince domestic industry that the deal will ultimately be good for them. And it's not going to be good for all of them. That's the point of free trade is it is a way of enhancing competition in your domestic market. And that's going to be bad by definition for some producers in your domestic market. So the normal free trade agreement dynamic is about counteracting protectionism. That simply doesn't exist in the current situation because there is no protectionism to counteract. What there is is the flip side, which is opportunism. In other words, you know, you will have, um, as we've seen, banks and the finance industry in the EU looking with some excitement at the possibility of business moving in the direction of Frankfurt and Paris and so on. The same with the legal sector, the same with various other sectors. But that's opportunism. That's extra business. That's not about protectionism, which the dynamic of which is completely different. With protectionism, what you're saying to people is, if we have this free trade agreement, people are going to lose their jobs. 
Now, they're going to find better jobs in export industries and so on, but that's what you're saying. In the current situation, at most what you are arguing about is whether or not there's more business, more profits, maybe even some more jobs. It's much easier to face that down than to face down the fear of an industry where people are going to lose jobs. And that's the normal dynamic, and that's why those agreements take much longer, and they are no precedent for the negotiations of this agreement. And we've had the announcement about Jaguar Land Rover laying off workers and they blamed, rightly or wrongly, uh, Brexit for some of that. But will the UK economy bounce back? There's going to be a dip. Uh, We have seen sterling devalue, wages go up slightly. But are you able to look at these trade deals and map out a long-term future for the UK economy? The Brexiteers want us to row out and do deals with the so-called third or developing world, which now some people are calling the first world even. But can we do deals with India, China, New Zealand that are more beneficial than the deals we've got at the moment? Marginally, be fairly sceptical. I mean, with India, as I think is relatively well known, what do the Indians want? They want to send their workers, their service suppliers and so on to the UK. The UK has always said no. I mean, that's uh, there's been an EU-India FTA negotiation for more than a decade now, and it's stalled on that precise point because the UK wasn't prepared to open up its market to that degree of you know immigration, essentially, even temporary, permanent, whatever, from India. So I can't see that changing, particularly in the current climate. Of course, if you change that, yes, you can have an agreement with India. If you give China what China wants, you can have an agreement with China. And if you give Australia what it wants, which are visas more than market access for beef, you can have a deal with Australia. Now, if you have all these wonderfully integrated deals, yes, you can you know, start to clock up the benefits. But the thing about these agreements, normal free trade agreements, even relatively integrated ones, is that they only add very little to GDP. That's the first point. Nothing uh, if you compare it to the level of integration that you can have with your nearest neighbor. The economists talk about the iron rule of distance, which is, you know, the further away, the less valuable a trading relationship has to be for you. You simply cannot make up for distance. The gravity principle of economics. Gravity, exactly. Gravity, but it's about distance. So, you know, even the most integrated agreement with Australia is not going to substitute for an even more integrated agreement with the EU. The other thing that's worth noting is that it's impossible to make these forecasts normally. Just about every forecast about the benefits of a free trade agreement is wrong because there are just too many moving parts. It's even difficult to work out what previous free trade, existing free trade agreements have done for you. With NAFTA, it's still up in the air quite what the effects of NAFTA were, and that's 20 years on. There was an, uh, an uh, assessment by the Australian Productivity Commission of the Australia-US FTA last year, and that agreement's been around for about, since 2004, it's 14 years, and they said that under that agreement, trade actually contracted Now, they did say it didn't contract by as much as if there hadn't been an FTA, but you can see from that example that certainly free trade agreements are no panacea. Now, you might wonder, well, why then the EU? Who cares about the EU? There's one very simple point. The value of of the uh, trading arrangement that one has with other EU member states as a member of the EU is not really about customs duties, which is mainly what free trade agreements deal with. It's not even about opening up government procurement markets, which free trade agreements do a fair bit about. The real value of trade within the EU framework is about recognition of standards, 
of other products from other countries, of service suppliers from other countries that a lawyer can go to Berlin and with very little interruption can practice law there, that products can be sold in Latvia as they can be sold in Oxford. All of that is very, very valuable. No free trade agreement other than within the the EU space, let's say a bit wider in the EU, it's the EEA as well, some of it's Turkey, some of it's Switzerland. No other trade agreement in the world goes anywhere um, near as far as one sees in the EU space on those regulatory issues. That's where the real value is, and that's what would need to be replicated. I don't think it can't be, I mean, it's not that I'm saying this can't be replicated between the EU and the UK. It can be replicated. Anything can be done. There's no precedent for doing this in the way that the UK is asking for at the moment. And that's why the current discussions are so fraught. And so therefore, we can't make predictions about how the economy will fare in the medium, short or longer term. But just finally, a couple more questions only. How will political historians judge these 18 months of negotiations after the triggering of Article 50 and two years since the UK voted narrowly to Brexit, the EU. If people spool forward 50 years and we look back, what are they going to say? You know, the EU negotiated well, it kept the 27 together. The UK couldn't map out or steer a very clear path forward. How will it will be judged? I suppose one could answer this in different ways. Just looking at this from the position of negotiation tactics, clearly the UK has not done a very good job. The last year and a half have not been very productively spent in terms of negotiations with the EU because we have only even recently come to an agreement in this country on what a future relationship with the EU might even look like. And it's no secret to say that that's more of an agreed disagreement than an agreed agreement. Nobody really seems to like it apart from the government. So that's checkers. Yeah, that's checkers. There's been very little movement on the Northern Irish issue. We haven't even talked about Gibraltar, nor, and maybe from today this will change, have we said anything about the only issue that most people can agree the referendum was actually about, which is immigration. Now, how is this country going to handle discussions of immigration, which are going to be at the core of any future partnership with the EU, when we've only begun to talk about this six months before the exit date? So from a negotiation point of view, it has been slow. And given that this two years was supposed to be about negotiations that the EU side said, why did you even submit your Article 50 notice without having made all these internal decisions first? I think we can safely say that this period has been a little bit wasted. And that's why we even have a transitional period. The transitional period, call it transition implementation or whatever. I think it's fairly obvious that this period is going to be used the 19 months is going to be used for what the two years was supposed to be used for. It's a delay of that two-year period, which itself was pretty short. So from that point of view, just looking at it you know, today, maybe a historian, a couple of years, uh, you'd have to say the period has not been well spent by the UK. But if we spool out a little bit further, I think we might look at it slightly differently. And the question then will be, well, could it have been any other way? And I think maybe history will look on this period a little bit more kindly, because I think what we're dealing with here is a revolutionary moment in British social and economic, and for that matter, legal history, maybe a little bit less political history, because I don't think that that will change with the EU terribly much. Constitutionally, a revolutionary moment. We don't know whether the current parties will survive in their present form. 
we know that there's a huge gulf of opinion between London and a few other centres in the UK and the rest of the country. We know that the union, very different views on, on what the UK should look like. There are so many points of fracture that I think it, the answer that historians might give to that question in 50 years' time is, yep, it wasn't very well handle from a technical point of view, but the country was at war with itself. And it simply, it was an ugly divorce where there was a lot of internal psychologizing that needed to be done. And that just takes time and is a fairly bloody process. And maybe the answer is the UK did as well as it could have. Maybe Theresa May may come out of this in the end, looking like a relatively strong leader, given the cards that she'd been played. Wow, that's quite some analysis of British political history as it is playing out at the moment over the two years of Brexiting the EU. But I've got to ask you this. What would you do? Where should we go next? Should we use checkers to get across the Article 50 divorce and Brexiting the EU so that we can appease the Brexiteers on the 29th of March 2019? Or should we just halt Article 50 and extend it. What do we do? I think the I would answer that question by asking the strategic question first and then the tactical question second. And the strategic question really has to be what sort of a relationship does the UK, and this was the question on the referendum paper essentially, what sort of a relationship does the UK want to have with its continental neighbours? Does it want to be in a rulemaking union with its neighbours, or does it want to stand outside of a rulemaking union with its neighbours? The answer was fairly close to 50-50. Maybe now it would be slightly on the other side, but not very much on the other side as far as most people are concerned. And I think we need to take that split seriously. That The real problem is we just don't have a good answer to what the country wants. If we knew that 90% of the country wanted to be shot of the EU completely, it would be very easy. We'd just drop out. We'd have an FTA or something like that. Economic, no politics, no real rulemaking delegation. If 90% of the population wanted a union with the EU, we'd be an EU member state. So the real problem is that we can't answer the strategic question and therefore it's impossible to answer the tactical questions and it just becomes, you know, gamemanship on the day as the different factions push for their desired outcome and that's what we're seeing and we'll continue to see with checkers uh, or without checkers. Now, I might have a view on what I think the UK should be doing, but I'm not a citizen of this country and it's not really appropriate for me to, to say. So that seems to be arguing the case for a second referendum in order to give us clarity, although some would argue that a second referendum might confuse even more. Well, there's a very good blog post today by Professor Serpus on exactly why a second referendum cannot, his analysis, come up with a question that will solve the problem. So, you know, what are you asking for, in or out? If out, what sort of out? You can see, uh, as a veteran of the Australian referendum on what sort of republic Australia can have, I know all too well how votes can be split and you end up with the status quo. The status quo, of course, in this case, uh, which I hope um, is... uh, Uh, universally known, the status quo is we crash out. That is the status quo, not that we stay in. So I would be wary of a referendum. Either you split the vote or you end up with a very slight result that goes in the opposite direction. And I'm not sure that that will do anything to make the people who lost a second referendum feel that their 
vote in the first referendum had been respected. If the Remainers are upset now, how much more upset are the Leavers going to be when a second referendum overturns what was supposed to be a once-in-a-generation opportunity for them to have their say? Given the time scale, the only option for the UK economy now is checkers. Yes, but what is checkers? It's a little bit you know, held together by sticky tape. I don't see it. Nobody sees it. Even the checkers proponents don't see this as being a fully workable plan. I think the government says that everything in checkers actually hangs together. It is a starting point. The EU, in its more benign moment, says, yes, this is a useful starting point for negotiation. I think the reason that that is said is because it recognises that there needs to be a trade-off between economic integration, which is uh, better for business, between sovereignty, which can be better for your political health, if that's the sort of thing that you like. And also, there's an open question, which you began asking about, which is how much can technology solve this? And we don't really have answers to any of these questions. I think the reason that Czechos is seen as positive by its proponents and also sometimes by the EU is that at least it acknowledges that trade-offs need to be made. That's the importance of Czechos. And it's the beginning of a discussion. And that discussion is really only going to begin in earnest after Brexit Day because there can't be an agreement, a legally binding agreement based on checkers until that day in any case. So checkers gets us across the 29th of March 2019. Checkers is an, yes, checkers is an acknowledgement that there are trade-offs that need to be made, that there are negotiations that need to be had. I think the, the shame, to come back to the earlier point about how this period has been used, is that it has taken so long for something like checkers to emerge. If checkers had emerged on day one, on the day that the Article 50 notice had been given, I think we would probably be in a better place now. But if anybody who has been watching the process will know that that was not just because of laziness, it wasn't because of laziness, it was because it was so hard to get the government position together. And maybe that's just the way it had to be. And so we did trigger Article 50 too soon. From a tactical point of view, you should never go into a negotiation without knowing what you want. So yeah, from that point of view, clearly, but there are other imperatives. And who knows, without triggering Article 50, maybe we would never have come to the position that we are in at the moment. It could have just been pushed on forever. So, you know, there's always, you know, counterfa hypothetical counterfactuals are very hard to, to work with. So I just don't know. I mean, I tend to think one can't always second guess history and a lot of it is just the way it had to be. Dr. Laurent Pertels, thank you very much indeed for talking to our podcast series today, looking at Brexit, the UK economy and the Chequers deal from a point of view of trade deals in which you are an expert. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.